Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. It's Bill Guggenheim, and he's the co-author of the best-selling book, Hello from Heaven. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit more about him for us, Hyde? Sure. I'm actually very excited to have him on. Um, like you said, he wrote a best-selling book, Hello from Heaven, and he has interviewed thousands of people about after-death communications. So I think this is a show not to be missed and one that will give people great comfort. Absolutely. Well, Bill, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much to be joy be here. It's great to have you on, and I've been looking at your book, Hello from Heaven. Uh, this has really been quite the book. It's been a bestseller for how many years? Well, uh, actually, it was published in 1995 when we self-published it, then Bantha published it in hardbound in 1996 and mass paper back in 1997, so 11 years ago by uh, commercial standards. Yeah. Now, have you done another one? or is this No, this is, a, this is the book. It's the definitive book on this topic. Uh-huh. But you do have a website, Heidi and I have both gone on to your fantastic website. The um, You call it ADC, right? Yes. Well, after, ADC is short for After Death Communication. Yeah, and uh, lots of good information on his website. Well, Bill, starting out on the show um, and looking at your book, I was really interested. Heidi and I are always very interested because we're talking to um, a lot of our uh, listeners are bereaved parents and other bereaved people that are fairly newly bereaved. And I'm always interested in talking to people about how they got into this field. And I noticed uh, in your book that you mentioned that when you were eight, your father died. Yes, correct. However, I didn't have any experiences myself uh, at that point. It, but what interested me in this field was when I was attending a five-day workshop with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in 1977. And she uh, related an experience she had had with a patient who had died 10 months earlier. Yeah, could you mention that? And I do want to get back to your loss a little bit, just because, uh, as I said, of our listeners. But uh, I think uh, people um, sometimes think of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross as just kind of being this doctor, academic, you know, now that um, she's been dead for a few years, and, and they don't realize where she actually came from. Could you mention a little bit well, about yeah, how she from, came into it? Uh, she's from Switzerland. She was one of three triplets, and... Uh, she grew up in Switzerland, and after World War II, she personally, for whatever reason, she had uh, started going through the, all the countries of that had been uh, occupied by the Nazis and things like that, went into the concentration camps and saw all the horrors that the Germans had perpetrated on everyone. And uh, that opened her heart up, obviously, and then she came to the United States later on as a psychiatrist, fully trained psychiatrist. And then uh, later on, uh, through a series of uh, choices uh, specialized in, or really founded the death, uh, the field of thanatology or death and dying on her own. And it was her books, the best one, best known one being titled on death and dying, which brought death out of the closet, so to speak, so people could talk about it. Right. I was in the healthcare profession myself at the University of Rochester at that time, and it was just kind of an amazing thing for everyone because, as she said, if you walked around the hospital, nobody was dying. That's right. Uh, she. Four students came to her who had to write a paper, and the topic was, what are the feelings and the thoughts and the fears and whatever concerns of those who were terminally ill? And it was just said, no problem. Just go to the large hospital in, the, in Chicago and walk through their wards, and we'll talk to the people there who are obviously you know, very, very sick and probably life expectancy of just a few weeks or months. 
However, at that point in the 50s and 60s, the staff were very much in denial, and the belief was everybody was going to get well and go home again, so nobody would talk about this. Absolutely. And then, um, because we're talking a little bit about after-death communication, talk about the one she had at the elevator. All right. Well, this was a number of years later because there, there had been a great deal of opposition to her because she persisted in interviewing people and uh, writing books about them and whatnot. And this was this sailed right into the opposition of the medical establishment. So there was uh, people wanted her to quit with doing what she was doing, and there was she was planning to turn in her letter of resignation the following day. And she was down at the elevator in an office building where she, where she was in Chicago. And a woman said, Dr. Ross, may I have a few minutes of your time? Elizabeth looked at her and said, okay. And I started walking down the hallway back to Elizabeth's office. And Elizabeth noticed that this woman was not fully solid the way we would be to one another. And uh, she did a lot of what she called reality testing. And she did remember who this woman was. She looked familiar at first, but she couldn't quite place her. And uh, it was a woman named Betty Schwartz who had died ten months earlier. Wow. And Elizabeth knew, had been very much part of this woman's dying process, and she knew that there was a particular minister that was involved as well. So when they got to the office, uh, Elizabeth, to document or verify this experience, to she asked this woman, Betty Schwartz, to write an note to her minister. So the woman did take a pencil and write a note. But, but uh, before she did so, she said, Dr. Ross, you're... Uh, research is far more, far too important for you to quit. You must promise me to, that you will continue. And then the woman wrote the note and once again elicited the same promise from Elizabeth that she would not resign but would continue her research. Then the woman walked toward the door and went yeah. out the doorway and Elizabeth paused for a beat and then ran to the hallway, looked up and down the long deserted corridor and nobody was there. But this had been a patient, as I said, who had died. That's wonderful. Earlier. And so she continued with the, the great work that's been so important yes. to all of us. And well, what impressed me was the fact that Elizabeth had nothing to gain and everything to lose by sharing such an unusual experience with the 70 people who were at this five-day workshop with her in 1977. Yeah, absolutely. I always thought she was so amazing that she was willing to hang in with this whole thing, yes. being a physician, and there was a huge amount of resistance to it. And and today there is still a certain amount of resistance to it. And let, let us say that not everyone has dreams or um, after-death communication or whatever. So if you're listening today and um, you're a skeptic or whatever, we hope you'll hang in and just listen to some thoughts about it and some um, things. And it's, it's, if nothing else, it's a very interesting topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to get back just with you uh, just a little bit about your dad dying when you were eight years old. I know you said that you didn't have any communication. Do you think that opened you more to uh, the future, though? Perhaps it did. Uh, I'm an only child. My father had been very ill for the two years following World War II. He had been 4F. And, and, and but so he couldn't participate in the war effort directly in the military. But he did a great deal of civilian defense work and had a victory farm, not just a mm-hmm. garden, but a farm, where he rose uh, uh, food for the war effort. And that uh, he had been born with a bad heart, and that's what really killed him off. So he, he was in a great deal of pain when he died. And I felt really a sense of relief for his sake when he died. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Bill, I know you didn't, as a child, have any after-death communication with him, but have you since? Yes, any? I have, yes. Uh, matter of fact, uh, in 1980, um, one afternoon, Judy and I were in our home in here in Florida, and we had finished a conversation on a Sunday afternoon, and as we were leaving our, the room, 
I heard a voice in my head say, go outside and check the swimming pool. And, uh, and you thought that was your father's voice? Yes, it was, who had died many years earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I did, I walked out to the back. Just There was no sense of urgency to it, but I, so I just walked to the back of the house, looked through the sliding glass doors. We had a safety fence about 15 feet away, and I noticed the gate was open. And this was a screened-in uh, swimming pool area. So I, I opened the sliding glass doors, walked to the gate just to secure it because we had three sons. And when I did, I had to look down to the far end, to the deep end of the pool, and saw that a youngest son, who was only 21 months old, was floating in the water without moving. And uh, he was not near the edge and not moving or anything. I had no idea if he was dead or alive. So I screeched Judy's name. Uh, That was my wife. I screeched her name out, ran down the side of the pool, and for some reason I took my shoes off before I went in the pool. I heard you're supposed to do that, so I did that. And I just paused and looked at my son, Jonathan, and I noticed his eyes were wide open, and he almost like he had a small smile on his face, and he was floating on his back, face up, about one inch under the water, mm-hmm. and not moving at all. And I uh, jumped into the pool, came up underneath him, and I pushed him to the side. Judy heard me scream. She came running out and pulled him out by the wrist, and we were both shivering because it was cold in May, and uh, even then in Florida it can be cold here. The water was cold. And uh, he coughed and spit up some water, but he was fine. He did not even require CPR. And I know if I had not been alerted uh, to go outside and check the pool, he would have drowned. There's no doubt in my mind that I would have been, and Judy and I would have been breathed parents had that warning not occurred to us. Now, having that communication with your father, did you have others, and have you felt closer to him? Yes, I've had that? other conversations, mostly uh, mental two-way conversations. Uh-huh. But that has opened something up for you yes, did, to, yes. to deal with some of your childhood losses? Uh, mainly as the present, not, not so much of the past, but whatever was happening in the present. Uh-huh. You know, um, I think it's such a great story for people about the fact that you were a bereaved child because there are so many uh, uh, folks out there right now that are concerned that their kids uh, who've lost fathers or uh, siblings, they're concerned that they're not going to be okay in the future. They're not going to be able to do things. They're going to be permanently damaged. Uh, again, it's, it's very helpful for them to be in a support group. I urge parents to find a support group for their children so that they can talk to each other. And the, the larger cities do have some kind of center for grieving children now. And it's talking to one another that's the most helpful, I yeah. believe. Your book's been pretty amazing. Now, one thing that I was amazed about is the relationship that you and Judy have. Well, we were married for 17 years and have three sons. Then we were divorced for four years in 1984, and we began working together in 1988 on this research and book and have been working together ever since then. So as I say, wow. humorous way, this life after divorce. Ah, I love that. That'll be your next book, though. If you want to create that. And uh, <laughs> when you have children, it's very necessary to do that for their sake, mm-hmm. right. if I, possible. I wanted to ask you, have your children had any experiences with life after death, and what do they think about your work? Have, have my children had any? Yes, and what do they think about your work? Uh, they just take it as a matter of stride because they grew up with it. Uh, they were of an age that when we were doing it, uh, our oldest son created our website, and our other two sons were very involved and uh, heard me give workshops and whatnot. And to them, uh, this is a normal and natural part of life, just as it is in other parts of the world. What we write about here in this country is being unusual or controversial. In other parts of the world, such as Central and South America, parts of Europe and Asia, especially the Catholic and the Spanish-speaking countries, Italian countries, things like that, 
uh, whatnot. People have these experiences at night and openly and and willingly share them with one another the next day. Now, now, Bill, I've heard that children are more open to these experiences than adults, especially in this country. Is that true? The children are much more open because nobody tells them you you can't have it or that it's unusual. And so they have very elaborate experiences with their brothers or sisters or parents or friends or whoever it is who has died. And they just will talk about it as a matter of course until some adult says, wait a minute, what did you say? Oh, yes, and then they'll dismiss it as a dream, meaning not real, something or some other way of denoting it, like uh, don't talk about that, it's not okay. And so they become self-conscious and they learn not to share with adults and then eventually they close down. So now what would we say to our listeners out there who say have had uh, they've got a child who's had a sibling die or a parent die or a grandparent or whatever recently, and they come and uh, tell their story. Then they'll be open and listen, because sometimes they get information they could not have known otherwise that will be very evidential. And in some cases, they've, I remember one, uh, two boys who were friends, one drowned, and nobody, even with a forensic uh, intervention and examination and whatnot, could determine how he drowned in a swimming pool, because he was a very good swimmer. And so the one who drowned came back to his friend who was still living and explained that he had slipped while fooling around the side of the pool and it hit the back of his head, the flat part of the back of his head on the side of the pool in such a way that it didn't leave, it didn't uh, tear the skin or anything like that or break any bones. And so the, even the autopsy did not determine that. And so then he just sank to the bottom of the pool and drowned. And it's only because this, he had related this information to his friend who was still living that that boy in turn shared it with his own parents and the parents of the boy who were drowned. Incredible story. What about the healing aspect for these little children? Uh, again, they don't see the difference between that world and this world and the next world, you see? It's seamless. So so they don't have the same healing that maybe an adult would no, have. No, it's the opposite. Story. It's even more, well, in a sense. I mean, it just it's just as it is with them. Yes, exactly. It's a matter of fact. They don't make a big deal because it's just, why they don't have any belief that it can happen therefore it does happen right and you might want to have your kids you know if they're younger even draw it or you know really embellish the experience rather than cutting it off exactly so it's it's how we hear them whether we hear them with believability and at the same time not pumping them and making it you know jumping on top of them and try to squeeze every detail out because that will make them feel uncomfortable as well so you just have to be open and Hear the, just like any other story they would tell. And Bill, and what about our listeners who would like to have after-death communications with their loved ones but haven't been able to? Is there anything they can do? Well, one thing I'd like to do is, just, is um, give a definition of an after-death okay. communication here because it's a very specific kind of communication. Absolutely. Okay, and basically our definition is that this, an after-death communication is a spiritual experience that occurs when someone is contacted directly and spontaneously by a relative or a friend who has died. And directly means that there's no psychic or medium or third party involved, and spontaneously means that our deceased loved one determines when, how, and where to contact us. So uh, this is very tight. This has nothing to do with ghosts and apparitions and you know uh, these other kind of unusual experiences and nothing to do with mediumship. These mm-hmm. occur spontaneously, and they're very, very common. We estimate that at least 60 million Americans uh, 20% of the population have had one of these, and other polls indicate it could be double that number, of as many as 120 million people. But whatever it is, it's a lot of people, and these are very real experiences, and they fall into 12 different categories according to our research. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get the 12 categories, you will probably don't have time to present every category, but 
Um, maybe the uh, major ones, or do we have time to run through the 12? Do you think? But, but, yeah, I'll, I'll just, uh, some are very common. Okay. Uh, uh, the most common one is actually feeling or sensing the presence of the one who's died, just mm-hmm. knowing that they're near you, and you can tell when or where they are in the room, and when they've come and when they've left. And the others involve the different senses, such as hearing a voice, which is by telepathy in your head, usually. Uh, smelling a fragrance you associate with a person who died. Yeah, that's a, a big one, smelling, because even spring and, you know, all those smells can bring those uh, things back to you very strongly. And uh, it's smelling something totally out of context. Such ah, as, out of context. Okay. Uh, maybe a flower in the middle of winter where there are no flowers growing and there's no cologne or perfume or anything like that that could be mistaken for that flower. And not only that, but two or more people can smell that uh, fragrance or scent as well, and as many as a dozen people can smell it, or whatever number are present, mm-hmm. and without anybody commenting on it, just one by one, they'll say, mm, where's that smell of the roses or some other flower or food or whatever it may be. Yeah, when my husband was going to visit my parents, he sp- smelled in their home Old Spice Cologne, because his father used to wear that. Okay, mm-hmm. and this would not be because it's actually lingering in the air, but... Uh, no, just, just nobody right. wears cologne in the family, so right, right. we couldn't believe we could smell this. Yes, exactly. So other ones involve... Uh, I feel a, a sense of a touch, being touched in some way, uh, 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 including a kiss or a hug. And, of course, the most dynamic ones are the ones which are visual, where we actually see the one who has died. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I want to stress, especially for bereaved parents, that regardless of the form of the death of their child or other loved one, in this case, uh, he or she will always appear healed and whole and in radiant health. And no matter whether it was a car accident or a fire or explosion or a battlefield uh, occurrence or whatever it may be, no matter how badly the body may have been damaged, they will come back appearing healed and in whole. They'll be usually typically smiling, and they'll be almost glowing with radiant health. And that's, that's what comforting, they want us to I know. think. That's very comforting to know. It is. And those who are elderly often come back looking younger, uh, moving backwards toward the peak of their life in terms mm-hmm. of well-being. Not all but some do. Well, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. You talk about the fact that anger, fear, and bitterness can block this. Uh, Again, stop and think about communicating with somebody right here on the earth plane who's filled with anger, fear, or bitterness. It's hard to communicate, and it's hard to get through to people. And uh, if if that's their predominant set of emotions, they don't want to hear us. They don't want to hear our message or whatever. So imagine how much more difficult it is for them to receive a message from a loved one who's not in physical form any longer. Mm-hmm. So resolving those issues may be something that you desire. It was interesting cause, uh, because I was going to do the show, and I've had, uh, I had a wonderful dream about Scott, and, and Heidi had uh, our son that was killed, and Heidi had, uh, and, and one of the guests on our show had a similar experience uh, with her brother. You want to tell him your experience, Heidi? Cause it's well, very I was on an Outward Bound program in Colorado, and, and our whole team could not get up the hill anymore. We were exhausted. We were spent. It was awful. We were crying, and so I really called out to him in my mind that I needed him because he had gone on the program the year earlier, the year before that, and he he put his, I didn't see him, but I felt his hands on my back, and he propelled all of us up the mountain, his, his spirit or something, and got us through that day, and it was a very powerful force, and nobody in, the, in, their, in that group could figure out what was there, but we all felt something pushing us up the mountain that day, and I knew it was him. And then we had Bill Hancock on, who wrote uh, the book Riding with the Blue Moth, mm-hmm. and Bill talked about crossing the United States after his son Will was killed uh, killed in an airplane crash, and that he was pushed 
up the hill on his bicycle. A very similar experience to mine, yes. Yeah. Mm. So they're powerful, and I just want to know how to get more of these experiences, you know, how to get more after-death communication. Well, there are three, several different ways. One is the uh, ask for a sign that you're a loved one, your child or your parent or friend or whoever it is. Ask for a sign that he or she still exists. And that means ask God or Jesus or the universe or your deceased loved one, whoever it may be, or whatever your faith is, if any, or just ask, period. <laughs> uh, please send me a sign. I need one. So let me know that you uh, continue to exist and everything's okay. And the most common signs involve butterflies and rainbows. Mm-hmm. But it can yeah. be many other forms. Uh, it could be a bird. Uh, we have many species of birds reported, other animals. And it's the beha- unusual behavior of the butterfly or the birds or the animals. It's not just seeing a butterfly, it's but rather what it may do. Hmm. And, and uh, you also uh, talked in your book about um, uh, meditation. Yeah, the best way, and this is wonderful if you are bereaved, and because people who are bereaved, they don't sleep very well, their appetite goes way down, they're constantly in a state of sadness or even depression. And today, of course, everybody's saying, well, here, take antidepressants. Well, that's one way to do it. But a much more organic way, you might say, is to learn how to meditate. And by that, I don't mean you go out and sign up for an expensive you know, course for thousands of dollars. You can either uh, just have, go to a local teacher uh, as a group teacher for probably you know $10 a session or something for five or ten sessions. Or you can uh, get a audio tape or CD or, or a book or things like this. Or just sit down in a chair and listen to gentle music and learn to relax, closing your eyes, doing some deep breathing and relaxing while you hear it. And that's what meditation is, is deep relaxation and slowing down your brain wave frequency and becoming more open to the intuitive. Uh, you also leave some life. space. And you create space for yourself. And while you do this, you begin healing emotionally. And uh, you'll find that you re- it's easier to sleep and you'll eat better. Occasionally, they may come to a friend or a neighbor because they can't get through your grief or you're just not open to it, and they'll ask that person to give you a message. Somebody yeah, I was going to ask you about that, you. though, because there was actually a woman that came up to me after my brother died and said that she had had communication with my brother, and that actually made me very angry because I felt like she didn't know him very well, and if he was going to contact anyone, it would have been someone in our immediate family. Yes, but you see, actually she was trying to do you a favor in the sense that he tried to get through to the immediate people, but because of their grief mm-hmm. or this unbelief or just not being as open, I'm going to say intuitively, he came to her because she was she would be that open, and she did, and she received the message and then attempted to deliver it. So she was really attempting to reach out and forward the message to you. Very mm-hmm. good. That makes sense to me now. Thank you. Um, and that's I, risky. I mean, people, you know, do feel a lot of emotions about somebody who's trying to deliver a message, and the person who has received the message feels very self-conscious, like, well, if I do this, they're going to think I'm nuts or I'm crazy or something like that. How do I know it's real? And they go through all the, a lot of self-doubt. Yeah, and there is a risk, and we were talking about Kubler-Ross took a risk, and you took a risk. Yes. Did you think about it yourself before you did this research about uh, it? It took me 11 years before I actually attended that workshop and began the research, mainly because I'm not a medical doctor, and the ones who are doing the research on near-death experiences, uh, such as Raymond Moody and uh, Melvin Morris, are medical doctors. So I didn't think I would have nearly as much credibility uh, because I used to be a stockbroker and a security analyst who didn't believe in any of this stuff. And it was my transformation and uh, persistence in doing all the research and everything. And we found we were giving workshops one year after we began our research in 1988. And 
and uh, we were. It's very unusual to be invited to give a uh, workshop at the Compassion of Friends if you're not a bereaved parent. And yes, mm-hmm. Judy and I were invited in 1989, one year after we began, to be presenters at the TCF conference in Tampa, Florida, which was about an hour and a half, two hours away from where we live. And we had over 300 people in our first workshop. Well, I know you had a lot. I was at um, the one in Detroit, and you had, a, what, 400 people there? I don't know how many, but we had a lot. I think it was <laughs> not a good estimator. So there are a lot of people looking for this experience and yeah, wondering what, about it, and a lot of people who have had it that are there to validate it, right? Oh, yes, because what I always do is have the people come up at the uh, end of my presentation and share their own experiences. I'm just a researcher. Who cares? I can say anything, blah, blah, blah. But it's when other mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers or grandparents are willing to come up and share their own first-hand accounts with a whole room full of people. That makes the presentation alive. Mm-hmm. Then you know that you, too, may have one, and whether you do or you don't, if you're, uh, at least other people are all around you, people just like you, do have them. Right, and it's interesting because I was talking to my husband about doing the show, and uh, I said, have you had an experience where Scott's appeared to you or anything? And he said, no, I have not. And I said, would you want one? And he said, no. Some people, <laughs> so that was some people are afraid of, of this, yeah. by the way. It's well, so much of, there's an overlay in our culture of religious values and uh, conservative Christians regard this as of the devil and demonic and satanic impersonation and all kinds of values like that. Parapsychologists, they say prove it, on and on and on. There's so much doubt and skepticism about anything we can't prove with science, meaning Correct. duplicate within a laboratory. And you can't duplicate these in a laboratory, but you can't duplicate creativity in a laboratory either, or love, or compassion, or any of the higher uh, functions of mankind. And yet uh, we insist that they be you know, treated the same way as we can do with physical, with physical matter. Right. Well, well. One of the things that came up for me is, is he is he wasn't denying my story or Heidi's story, or he listens to all the stories and he is happy with them, and he's yeah. happy that he doesn't have the story. You know. Mm-hmm. So I think what I'm saying to my audience out there is, be patient if you are not having the experience somebody else is, and uh, you know it's their experience. Yeah, we find that certain families are more open than others, and many members in one family may have experiences. Sometimes the father does and the mother doesn't, or the mother does and the father doesn't. It can be jealousy, like what doesn't my son love me too? But it's just that some people are more open intuitively. So that's what meditation does. It allows our intuition to open up, which benefits in so many ways, not just in this field, but in terms of creativity and having more solutions to life's problems. So, Bill, are you finding that most people's experiences are the loved one coming back and saying that they're okay? Oh, that's... The universal message is, I'm okay. Uh, you don't have to grieve for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, go on with your own life. Everything is, is okay here. Because when, when someone dies, we have two concerns. How is that person? Do they still exist? Mm-hmm. And the other is a sense of loss that we have because the death is a form of emotional amputation. Some part of us is no longer there, and that's extremely painful. Oh, I like that, emotional amputation. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's a good way to put it because it is so excruciatingly painful. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's like having an arm or a leg or an eye or something just ripped up off you, mm-hmm. and it takes years to heal. Now, when you present to other groups, do you see any difference between uh, bereaved parents and other groups? No. Grief is grief, and uh, wherever there is love and then there's the absence of it where that person is no longer there to to touch, to, to talk with, to just be close to. That's a tremendous sense of loss in all cultures 
and all relationships. I mean, some people grieve for their grandparents when they die because they were raised by their grandparents. Right. And that was the most nurturing, loving person in, in their life. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's no greater grief than the uh, loss of the death of a child. That's the most painful of all. Mm-hmm. And I've spoken to some women who had the death of a husband and the death of a child. And I'm not meaning to put down husbands, but they'll say of the two, the death of the child was far more painful than the death of the husband. I always wonder if that's some kind of biology, too. Um, well, it's the expectation. I mean, but go back 150 years. where people had a large family of, say, 10 to 15 children, it was normal to have two or three of them die of accidents, diseases, things like that. I think 80% at the turn of the century died before the age of eight or something. Okay, and uh, t- today it's so unusual. We expect everybody to die in a linear sense, you know, the great-grandparents, grandparents, right. parents, mm-hmm. ourselves, and our children. So for a child to die uh, out of turn, so to speak, is such a shock and so unusual relatively compared to the way it used to be. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about your website and all the wonderful things you've got on the web? Well, uh, let me give the uh, address first, www. It's uh, after-death.com. Okay, so we'll have after, that on our blog AF, also. A-F-T-E-R with a hyphen and death, D-E-A-T-H, dot com. And our son created it in uh, 1995. We've had over 2 million visitors oh to God. our website. Yeah. And uh, it's there for everybody to come to, use, gain information from, learn about the field. It's the largest website devoted to this topic. And... Uh, it is what it is. So we've and uh, don't you have uh, where people can put their stories? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And we have a message board where they can communicate with each other. Uh-huh. So it has a great deal of information and pr- provides a great deal of comfort and a source of uh, people connecting with each other from all over the world. I mean, when I read the guest book, I'm awed to see how many foreign countries people have come from. Um, I think that whatever helps a person to feel more connected to their child who died, or anyone else, whatever feels healing and, and nurturing. It's, it's about self-nurturing. It's about honoring what it is that makes us feel better and then doing it. And uh, attending support groups such as the Compassion of Friends, I think, is essential for that because they have so many ways to uh, cause us to feel more connected to our children who have died. Mm-hmm. And you can find information about the holidays on their website and also on our blog. Well, Bill, would you talk a little bit about your book and what's in it before we... Well, besides, uh, we have 353 first-hand accounts, and each one is a complete short story in the experience's own words. And so the one by Elizabeth Kuhler-Ross and one by me, in which, uh, which prevented our son from drowning. But what I'd like to stress is that we have six entire chapters, and each chapter has about 15 experiences in it. Six entire chapters are why are these real and not merely grief-induced hallucinations, as they have been termed previously. These are not just a result of wish fulfillment or imagination or magical thinking or fantasies or memories or something like that. And uh, these range from having the experience before you even know your loved one has died, uh, and you wouldn't be bereaved prior to that, to having experienced 10, 20, 30, or more years afterwards. You're not heavily bereaved that many years after the death to uh, learning things you didn't know before, being told where to find things of uh, either emotional or sentimental value, or in some cases things you didn't even know existed and being led to those very specifically to look for them and find them there. And they may have, as I say, financial value or emotional value or whatever. Then, as you heard about my son who could have drowned if I hadn't been warned, we have an entire chapter of people who were uh, notified in some way that uh, which prevented them from being seriously injured or killed by following the advice that was given, such as stop your car now or 
look out the window and then they saw that there was a fire at the barn which was moving toward their house, things of that nature, many different forms of protection. And then an entire chapter, which is very interesting, of people who were suicidal and planning to take their own life who had a deceased loved one come to them at just the right moment, just the right way to dissuade them from taking their life. And that alone, I think, is a fantastic field of interest and, and shows. It's a great field of interest, but how about those folks out here, kids did take their lives, and they're wondering where that message was. Uh, some people disregard it, too. They may receive it and disregard it, because taking their life, there's so many motivations for doing it, but the, the common one, I think, is the people who are in that space for some time are in so much emotional pain. All they want is the pain to end. And if they could find some other way to have it end, they would. But this is the extreme, of course. And they just feel so cut off and so isolated and so helpless and hopeless that they think that they're going to have a, a cessation of pain. It's not that they're going toward a life after death. They just want to stop hurting for whatever reason that they're, that they're so upset by. Right, and uh, what about, where is it in your book that talks a little bit about how they can get these experiences to? Well, it's, it's different parts of it, such as uh, if you do feel the presence of a deceased loved one, if you, other than driving a car, sit down, close your eyes, open your mind, take a few deep breaths and say, uh, if you have a message for me, please l- let me know and I'll try to receive it mentally. Yeah. So that and the medita- learning to meditate. And uh, I uh, wrote an article for We Need Not Walk Alone, which is a publication of the Compassionate Friends about this general field of after-death communications. I'm going to be writing a follow-up article of how to have these experiences, which will be published in a future issue. Oh, that's great. And you can get that through the Compassionate Friends. That's correct. I believe that's online, so you can uh, get a hold of that. Yes. Well, uh, it's almost time to close our show, and we want to thank you for being on our show, Bill. It's been great talking to you. I especially want to always deliver messages for bereaved parents because the Compassionate Friends, I feel so honored. Judy and I have felt so honored to be invited to their presentations, and I'll be at their Southern uh, Regional uh, Conference in Kentucky in March and at their uh, Eastern Regional Conference in Pennsylvania in next September. And I hopefully we'll be at Kansas in uh, Oklahoma City, but I haven't heard from them yet. Great. So go online and the Compassionate Friends, and you'll find out exactly when those are going to be and when Bill will be there. And uh, what a great opportunity to do that. And thank you so much for your research and for being on the show and for all the good you're doing in the world. And uh, best to Judy. Thank you very much, Gloria and Heidi. And let me wish you a very happy New Year. Yes. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.